Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 6, The Good, the Bad, and the Foolish. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can easily find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. Picking up where we left off last time, since convenience is ruling the day in the newly established northern kingdom of Israel, for those residents of central Israel, for whom even the trek to a northern or southern border within their new nation is just too problematic, Jeroboam sets up worship sites at local high spots so that people can worship me or any other deity they like with as little travel or effort required as possible. Here then is another example of how taking one step off the way generally leads to another, then another, all of them leading you further from it than you ever thought you'd get. Now, to staff all these worship sites, Jeroboam has to deputize all kinds of extra priests to take care of it all, and he has to go outside the tribe of Levi, which you'll recall is the sole source tribe for every priest on the way. You can track with us from 1 Kings 12.31. Jeroboam rightly expects that no self-respecting or me-respecting Levite or priest would sanction his new system if allowed into it and able to see the scope of its compromise so he forbids them from serving in the new regime. Instead, Jeroboam ordains priests from the other tribes at random to meet the sudden need for an expanded clergy. Which brings us back to the southern kingdom of Judah and Chronicles, as all the Levites and bona fide priests living in the north that have suddenly become personae non grate up there have an exodus of their own. They head to Judah in order to be able to continue to serve and sacrifice to me on the way we've established. A good number of lay members of other northern tribes that are also troubled by Jeroboam's theological developments come with them to the south. And for a good three years, with all the blatant northern heresy they've fled still ringing in their ears, Everyone in the south is firmly on the way, walking in the steps of pre-princess Solomon and his father David, tracked in 2 Chronicles 11, 13 and following. In the meantime, Jeroboam, already playing fast and loose in the name of convenience in Israel, decides the festival calendar we've set doesn't work for him as well as he'd like. The Festival of Booths celebrated at the end of the harvest, is too early for his taste. It makes harvest time such a rush, especially since it takes just a bit more time for things to ripen the further north you get. So he bumps it up a month later than we have said it, moving the feast to the eighth month instead of the seventh. Leviticus 23.33 lays it all out, I know perfectly well when the grain and fruit ripen and have set the seventh month for the end of harvest 
so that everything's safely stored away before the rainy season and the damage it can bring hits. Also, harvest is always hard work, but Jeroboam has just robbed his people of a month's rest by postponing their feast. And, in Jeroboam's estimation, none of these rubes are doing the sacrificing the way he thinks it ought to be done. After all, he sent away everyone who knew how and why to do it all. So, Jeroboam makes the sacrifices himself to Israel's southern golden bovine, a substitute king, acting as a substitute priest, sacrificing to a substitute image in a substitute location. Amazing. Now, lest Jeroboam think we are fine with all this innovation and improvement of several of our direct commands, we interrupt his peak experience of offering sacrifice for the first time, remember, everything about this moment is wrong, and we offer our opinion of it all. We arouse another new prophet in Judah, since all the people following us with all their heart are either from the southern kingdom right now or recently moved there. And we send our new prophet to speak for us at just that moment in Second Kings 13. Have you ever seen someone so angry with another person that they can't even speak directly to them at the time? So they tell another person within earshot to tell the offending person something for them? You can tell so-and-so that I am shocked, shamed, and embarrassed by whatever the problem is. Well, we are a bit like that with Jeroboam at this point. We are so incensed at his offering incense to us in this multiplied heretical way that if we speak to him directly, we will probably fry him. And since Jeroboam is alone in this action, our prophet speaks to the only other thing nearby, the altar. It's supposed to be serving as a contact point with us anyhow. I level the harshest judgment in the owner's manual to make clear that all this who cares what Yahweh says, just make it up yourself as you go along, does not work. At all. This king of the north who in his pride has squandered his chance to walk on the way, his chance to really lead his people at my side. Here's my prophet promised the altar brutal judgment at the hands of a righteous king from the south. A king from David's line will clean house in the north and sacrifice on this very altar the counterfeit priests that are making sacrifices to other counterfeit gods at all the high places, bovine sites included, that Jeroboam has set up in his pride. As proof of the truth of his words, the prophet predicts an instant miraculous sign. The altar to which he's speaking will come apart and tumble into pieces on its own, and the ashes of all the improper sacrifices that are piled upon it will be scattered. Furious at such backtalk, Jeroboam stretches out his hand and points at the fellow, yelling in classic bad-guy fashion, Seize him! However, as he's pointing at my prophet, Jeroboam's hand withers and freezes in place. 
And before Jeroboam can utter another cliché, the sign we've just promised of the altar's spontaneous demolition hits. In the churn of airborne ash, Jeroboam, having the sense to see that this fellow really is on a mission from us, asks the prophet if he'd please be so kind as to intercede with Yahweh, your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored. Note Jeroboam's pronoun use, your God, not our. O Jeroboam! Hoping this brief experience of my power will move Jeroboam to mend his ways, I consent and fix his hand up good as new right there on the spot. Sadly, once our prophet declines at our direction Jeroboam's dinner invitation and departs, the northern king reverts back to his new business-as-usual model, continuing every bit of it, including his consecration of anyone who'd liked to take a whack at priesting at his bootleg high-place multi-god worship sites. Then Jeroboam's son gets sick. Jeroboam at least has the sense to think there may be more to his son's illness than catching something from his playmates. Those of you who've been reading the scriptures we've mentioned have been introduced to the prophet Ahijah already. From the tribe of Ephraim, like Jeroboam, Ahijah's from the town of Shiloh, which you may remember as the former location of our tabernacle for quite some time, set up there by Joshua, and maintained there in the time of the judges through Eli, until his sons took the ark into battle as a good luck charm. Yes, we know Shiloh well. It's a little way south of Shechem in the territory of Ephraim. At this stage of the game, there's resonance from something in the past nearly everywhere you step in the fractured nations of Israel and Judah. When he previously spoke to Jeroboam, Ahijah had been the bearer of good news, at least for Jeroboam, of his becoming king of the northern ten. Included in that conversation, of course, were my now standard if-then promises. Jeroboam has clearly forgotten all of those, but still has warm feelings for Ahijah for giving him the heads up about his kingship. So, when Jeroboam's son Abijah gets sick, Jeroboam sends his wife to the prophet in order to find out what can be done for their boy. The poor gal remains nameless in the owner's manual. Handily, Shiloh is close and well within Israel's borders, so the queen doesn't have to slip behind enemy lines to find the prophet in Judah. Old Ahijah is blind now and Jeroboam sends the queen in disguise. Whether he's thinking this will bring a more unbiased report from Ahijah, or that Jeroboam can somehow get my prophet to pronounce blessing and healing over the anonymous woman's sick child without knowing its true parentage, doesn't matter. It's yet another indicator of Jeroboam thinking that he can manipulate every situation he touches for crying out loud what prophet worth their salt would fall for this. Not one of ours, I can tell you that. When he hears her at the door, Ahijah welcomes the disguised woman with, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Actually, Ahijah knew and used her name, 
The fellow who wrote it all down in Tom a few years later is the one who forgot it. Why are you pretending to be someone else? But then, like a good prophet would, he answers his own question. Listen, sister. All the news I've got for you in Jeroboam is bad from top to bottom. We're in 1 Kings 14 now. Here we really must very strongly urge you that you pick up your manual again and hear for yourself Ahijah's words, because they spell out all the consequences of Jeroboam and his people turning their backs on me in wanton improvisation of my commands and adulterous infidelity with other gods. The words Ahijah utters here will play out over the centuries to follow, beginning with the death of the king's son, and ending with Jeroboam's people, my people, my chosen people, my precious children, my cherished nation, for whom I had so much more to give, ending with the people of Israel scattered in exile beyond the Euphrates River. 1 Kings 14, 7-17 The importance of Ahijah's words cannot be exaggerated. If you're not able to look it up, let us just tell you, there is no joy in Shiloh that day, as Ahijah simply tells Jeroboam that we have no other choice but to keep the promises I made to him before he became king. Had he chosen the course of walking on the way like David had, Jeroboam would have had a lasting kingdom like David. Instead, Jeroboam has chosen his own path that is now far off the way, a path that will lead him and his people exactly where we promised it would. His house will come to an end, and the people will be uprooted and scattered. I do not say these things lightly, believe me, they are my children. The commands and principles with which I mark the way are not random or cavalier, but there for your protection. In violating so many of them at one time, Jeroboam not only put himself in danger, but all his nation. Learn the lesson from Jeroboam that something that may seem like it makes sense, but is against what I have said, will not have a better outcome than remaining on the way with me. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or Facebook. Then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the very first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself. <laughs>